Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Do you see what I see? I know that was a bit of an abrupt stop, but uh, it's a beautiful song, but I was actually surprised to find out the history of this song. So this song was written in October of 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when we hear the words, the star, star, way up in the sky with the tail as big as a kite, they're actually referring to the possibility, the imminent threat of a missile being launched and wiping people off the face of the planet. And the couple that actually wrote this, they were married at the time, they were, they were tasked with writing a Christmas song and they weren't quite sure that they wanted to write a Christmas song, especially with everything going on. And they wrote this song to kind of have this twofold meaning, because that star also represents the star of Bethlehem that led the Magi and the wise men to, to the location where Jesus was born. But it was this tension that they wanted to also draw out, that this, this sense of peace on earth, it, is it fully here yet? Is it realized? And the pair who wrote it, they themselves actually were unable to sing the song because some of the lines that they write in it just had so much meaning to them um, as they were watching parents push their strollers around the city of New York and wondering what was going to happen in the future. And here lies the, ad the tension of Advent because we celebrate peace, hope, joy, and love, but yet... Just like Alex even shared, man, was this re week really peaceful? Was this year a year that we would describe as peaceful? So does peace really exist today? Is it possible? Or is it something that we have to wait for Jesus' second coming to fully realize and experience? Another song that I thought about playing for you tonight. It's called Peace on Earth by Chris Rice. And one of the lines from his songs reads, Peace on Earth, peace on earth. Did the angels waste their words? Everywhere raise this prayer, let there be peace on earth. And this is the tension. It's something we need to sit with. It's something that we just can't fill with more Christmas parties and more stuff. Although we try and we try. But here's the beauty of Advent. As author Sarah Bessie writes, Advent is for the ones who know longing. Now that I have wept, now that I have grieved, now that I have lost, now that I have learned to hold space with and for the ones who are hurting, 
Now I have a place for Advent. So Advent helps create space for us to simply be and to lean into questions. And questions can sometimes be scary, but I don't think they need to be. I think questions are just a natural part of being human. We all have questions. David in the book of Psalms cries out and he asks questions such as, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Mary asks in the Christmas narrative, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these aren't arrogant questions that have no respect for our maker, our creator, but rather, I believe they're naked, vulnerable, honest, raw questions that arise out of the awe that comes from engaging with the living God. And I think when we can lean in to some of our questions, there's a sense of freedom that comes with it. It frees us from having to have it all figured out. It frees us from having to have all the answers. And instead, what we're offered is an invitation to participate and live in the mystery of being in a relationship with God. I believe that as we study Scripture, as we study our Bibles, and we truly study them, it will lead us to wonder and awe. Because it leads us to the person of Jesus. It leads us to the character of God. And even in our parenting series, I remember that was one of the points that I had made, was teach our kids how to ask questions. Because questions are the lifeblood. Questions drive us deeper. Every time I went to school, I kept thinking I was going to come away with more answers. And as you can probably all attest to, you come away with a broader perspective and some more questions on, well, if this means that, then you have so many more questions that open up. And one thing that I continually discover as I go deeper and deeper is that the Christian faith is a lot of paradoxes. And paradoxes can't be solved. We have to let them just be what they are. So part of being a Christian, it's about celebrating the mystery more than it is about conquering. So let's ask the question tonight, is peace possible? But to answer that question, we have to ask, what is peace? And what's expected? What was expected? And perhaps going back thousands of years ago, we can find out what it means to live here and now in 2018. And I want to begin tonight with a bit of background on the the person of David. Now, why David? Well, he plays an important part in discovering what people were expecting when Jesus was born. In fact, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, the very first chapter of our New Testament, the first verse, Matthew lays out Jesus' genealogy and connects Jesus to David. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So God makes a covenant promise with Abraham. That goes down to David. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, it reads, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now this is pretty remarkable genealogy because as you may know, there's murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, uh, outsiders, people on the margins that make up Jesus' genealogy. 
What's also pretty remarkable is what Matthew's doing here with some literary devices. Uh, the number 14 is highly significant. And actually the name uh, David and the characters, if you assign them numbers, that actually even equals 14. And I, I'm not going to get caught up too much in this, but what Matthew is doing is he's writing to this Jewish audience who's expecting their Messiah, who's expecting the son of David, and it's, he's kind of giving a wake-up call, saying, hey, hey, wake up, look here, this is your Messiah. But who is David? Well, David is a person that comes from our Old Testament. Um, primarily, you can look at First and Second Samuel for more of his life and story. He's about a thousand years before the Christmas story, a thousand BC. So we're talking a thousand years before we even get to Jesus. David is the second king of Israel. He comes after Saul, after the people had been crying out for a king. And what people loved with David is that he united Israel. He conquered enemies, and he established the practices of worship in Jerusalem. He ruled this land for what was a fairly long time there, about 40 years, which the, the cultural climate was super volatile, so that was really rare. And this is the David who, who fits the popular stories of David and Bathsheba, where he sleeps with another's man, another man's wife and then has him murdered on the battlefield. This is the David from David and Goliath, where he goes out with a sling and kills the giant. David is ruthless. David is violent. But as much as he was that, he was also a man who was humble. He was a man who was open to grace and forgiveness, and he found it easier to actually extend it to others than receive it himself. But when he was called out on his sins, on his wayward ways, he repented and came back to God, and he was actually known as a man after God's own heart. And God promises David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this is where it gets interesting because as the nation of Israel, as the Jewish people, as God's people, you're hearing this and you're saying, okay, the throne of David, this, this uh, time of rest, this time of ease and being in control, this is going to last forever. But David dies and everything falls apart. The Jewish people then go into a long time of turmoil and captivity. But within this time, the prophet Isaiah shares a vision of hope, which is part of Israel's heritage, which Alex read earlier, Isaiah 9, 6, which is for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So essentially, if you were a good, God-fearing Jewish person, you have been waiting for a thousand years for David's throne to be established, for this prophecy to be fulfilled, as it said it would be forever. All the while, you've been living under shame, defeat, and humiliation. Because you're supposed to have the God who's above all gods, but you're in captivity. Still, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they, they knew and believed that God would keep his promises to Israel and to the house of David and held out hope. 
they embraced Advent, this period of waiting for the Messiah's coming. And now comes Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, the fulfillment of prophecy. Luke 2.14, the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, this is where Matthew's trying to, to link Jesus, the son of David, and, and kind of present these connections because everyone's, they've been waiting for so long that there, is, this the, is this the Messiah? Is this the king? Is this matching our expectations? In fact, it was a little unexpected to say the least, the way that this whole story unfolds. For the Greeks, salvation comes through elevated thought and philosophy, not through a baby who would grow up to be a crucified savior. That's foolishness. And to the Jews, well, salvation comes through power, through a deliverer who overthrows the Romans, not through a baby who would become a servant and then a crucified savior. That's the opposite of strength. You see, as Israel waited for the promised son of David, a warrior, someone with power, someone who would overthrow the current government, which was how David did it for those 40 years. In fact, David wanted to build the temple and wasn't able to because God told him he had shed too much blood. You see, they were waiting for someone like David to come through might, through strength, through power and brute force. I mentioned last week that the taxation rate at this time was about 90%, 9-0. And they were in the Galilee region, a region that was oppressed by the Romans. So when they thought of peace, they believed it would come about the same way, this brute force, this overthrowing. They're, they're sick and tired of paying the 90%. They want someone who's going to come in Show them favor, take control, flip the tables, turn things around. But this isn't what came. What came instead was a baby delivered by a teenage girl in a lowly manger who was then on the run with her not-yet-husband, Joseph, who, who he himself would have only been about 18 years old. The life expectancy was probably around 40 years at that time. And this is the Prince of Peace? this? Well, we need to understand that our word peace, it's only a partial reflection of what's meant. When, when we think peace, we think uh, the, the, no wars, no animosity, no, no hatred. But the, word, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom is this much broader idea of what peace is. And it's this sense of wholeness, completeness, reconciliation, restoration. Biblical peace means to make complete or to restore to a state of wholeness. It's a sense of putting back together what had been divided. It means so much more than merely the absence of hostilities. So you see, the advent of Jesus is the arrival of peace, the arrival of shalom. He not only made peace with God for us, but he became our peace. Through the advent of Jesus, not only are we no longer in conflict with God, but much more, God has restored us to a state of wholeness. And it's the Christmas story 
that holds this most astounding event in history, where the transcendent one becomes one of the created, the infinite becomes finite, the immortal experiences mortality. God is with us. So what does this all mean? It means that peace is possible when we surrender to Jesus. You see, what the world desperately needs is reconciliation. It needs this putting back together, which God is in the process of doing. But you see, as humans, we're terrible at living at peace with one another. There are so many wars happening around our world today. And having already gone through two world wars among some of the most educated nations on our planet, the optimism for peace and world peace continually fades. But this is the amazing thing that we're reminded of at Christmas, that the Christmas story is a story of reconciliation. Romans 5, 10 to 11 states, even when we were God's enemies, he made peace with us because his son died for us. Yet something even greater than friendship is ours. Now that we are at peace with God, we will be saved by his son's life. Reconciliation is essentially the restoration of peace. Peace with God, peace with others, and peace in our own heart. Rick Warren, a pastor down in California, he writes this about reconciliation. He says, Reconciliation is the powerful miracle cure for broken lives and relationships. Reconciliation diffuses conflict and turns chaos into calmness. It quiets quarrels. It swaps your stress for God's serenity turns tension into tranquility, and produces peace of mind instead of a panic or pressure. At Christmas is when the angel announces to the shepherds at Bethlehem the arrival of the Prince of Peace. But Jesus doesn't merely teach us about peace. He also empowers us to live lives of peace if we would trust him. Unfortunately, though, our world it's littered with debris of broken homes, broken families, discarded friendships, damaged partnerships. Several years ago, Warren, the same pastor from California, he did a mall survey, and he asked shoppers, where would you like to see peace this Christmas? And here's how some people responded. I'd like peace with my parents, my ex and my kids. I'd like to see the end of political bickering on TV. I need peace in my mind and my heart, a peaceful neighborhood, end prejudice. If we don't find peace soon, our marriage will be over. I want my mom and daddy to get back together. I'd like to see peace everywhere. So again, is peace on earth really possible or is it this unattainable fantasy? I believe that peace is possible when we surrender to Jesus. But the starting point to peace in your life is understanding causes of conflict. And I know there's many, but here's two big ones that I tried to break down. So first is our natural self-centeredness. I want everything my way. You want everything your way. Eventually, those two ways are going to collide. This happens all the time. The next one is common, but it's less understood or at least less recognized, but it's expecting others to meet needs in our lives that only God can meet. You see, we make demands of others instead of looking to God. 
Or we get married even with these unrealistic expectations of what our spouse is going to fulfill in our lives. But ultimately, no human being can fully meet all of your needs. That's a job for God. The truth is that there's never going to be peace in the world until there's peace within nations. There's not going to be peace in our nations until there's peace in our communities. There's not going to be peace in our communities until there's peace in our families. And there won't be peace in our families until there's peace in our individual lives. But this doesn't happen until the Prince of Peace reigns in our hearts. It starts with us. Jesus has made it possible. He is our peace. But it's, it's us stepping into that relationship with him, walking with him into peace, that we can then spread this throughout the world. It's a participation with Jesus. Peace is possible when we surrender to Jesus. And there are three types of peace that I believe we discover as we continually surrender to him. There's peace with God, the peace of God, and peace with others. So you might not have ever thought about this or realized that you're trying to live your own way into the gods. Or sometimes we just forget. But symptoms of not being at peace with God include irritability, quick temper, insecurity, impatience, manipulation, arrogance, boasting, holding grudges, many other attitudes, habits that I'm sure we've all wrestled with from time to time. But the Bible calls these the works of the flesh. But you see, when we have peace with God, we're told that we actually produce these qualities in our lives that includes peace. And these qualities are known as the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible says when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is a person, but as we walk in relationship with Jesus, peace is also something that is produced in and through us. But how can an imperfect person be reconciled to a perfect God? Peace comes from surrender. This total, unconditional surrender to God. You admit that God is God and that you're not. And then you discover the peace of God. Because once you make peace with God, you'll begin experiencing the peace of God. Isaiah 26.3 tells us that you, Lord, give true peace to those who depend on you because they trust you. But you see, we have these peace robbers that come in. They want to rob us of our peace. And most of the culprits fall into one of three categories. Uncontrollable circumstances, which would be illness, death, layoffs. Unchangeable people people who refuse to cooperate with your plan to change them, or unexplainable <laughs> problems when life just seems unfair. And when these arise, we then respond to these peace robbers in one of three ways. We try harder to control everything, we simply give up, or we gain true peace by responding to these situations the way Jesus did depending on his spirit to empower us. 
And then this allows us to step into peace with others. Because last but not least, we're called to be peacemakers. Once you've made peace with God, you experience the peace of God, God wants you to experience the joy of being at peace with all people in your life. In fact, I'll even go so far as if you want God's blessing on your life, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Notice how it doesn't say the peaceful or the peace lovers, the peacekeepers, it's the peacemakers. Now, this doesn't mean avoiding conflict, pretending it doesn't exist, or appeasement. To work for peace means you actively seek to end conflicts. You take the initiative in promoting reconciliation when relationships break down. You offer forgiveness to those who've hurt you. You pass on to others the same grace that God's given you. As a peacemaker, you help bring people together. It's this putting back together, this reconciliation, this wholeness. This is the ministry of reconciliation. This is being a peacemaker. But I will just put out a few cautions regarding reconciliation. Because there are severe hurts that I know many people have experienced. But there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. There's a difference between reconciliation and resolution. This does not mean that you have to return to hurtful or dysfunctional relationships without any change taking place. Reconciliation ends hostility, but it doesn't mean you've resolved all the problems. You, you might have buried the hatchet, but not the issues. You continue to work on these, but you can do it out of a place of love and a place of respect. Forgiveness, this is a hard one, but I believe it needs to be instant and free, and we offer it in the same way that God offers it to us. But the reason why we forgive and why I believe it needs to be instant is so that we can move on with our lives and not be held back due to resentment, due to bitterness. But you see, restoring trust is a different matter. Forgiveness lets you let go of the past, but trust is about moving into the future. And it must be earned over time. So if you've been abused, God expects us to forgive so bitterness won't poison our lives. But I don't believe he expects us to continue being abused. So here are some simple steps for being a peacemaker. Empathize with others' feelings. Listen to show that you care. Attack the problem, not the person, speaking truth and love. Cooperate wherever possible, looking for common ground. Emphasize reconciliation, not resolution. So where do we see peace today? I believe peace is when we make new friends. Peace is when we help our neighbors. Peace is saying you're sorry when you hurt someone. Peace is sharing a meal. Peace is having enough food for everyone. Peace is possible when we surrender to Jesus. So where do you see peace? And as I was wrestling with this whole idea of do you see what I see and trying to look for peace, hope, love, joy, I wanted to come up with some kind of reminder 
to remind us to, to remind us to look for these things throughout the weeks ahead. So you probably didn't notice because it blends in here, but there's ornaments here. Oops. I took that hook for this one. <laughs> and it's labeled peace. And we actually have one for every family here tonight. And if there's extras, take, take one home. And hang it on your tree. And look at it throughout the week. And as you do, just say a simple prayer. Thank God for the peace that we have in our lives. Thank God for the peace that we can have in our community, in our homes. But also ask where he's calling us to make peace or where there's areas in our lives that we need to continually surrender to him to restore that relationship. See, the significance of the Christmas story and the passage from Isaiah that we looked at comes down to this. Have we allowed the child king, have we allowed Jesus to take over the government of our lives? Because only then can we know the benefits of God with us. Peace is possible when we surrender to Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are the Prince of Peace. And Lord, we do live in this already not yet kingdom that you've initiated, inaugurated. And there is this tension that we see signs of peace, that, that peace is possible when we surrender to you, but it's not perfected. And it won't be fully realized until we do see your second coming. But God, I pray that tonight, as we continue to just gather around the table, gather with each other, connect with one another, I pray that you continually empower us to be people of peace. And that we'll continue to make peace with one another and take that peace beyond these walls and into our communities, our homes, our workplaces and schools. We thank you for the gift of your son. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen.